Good morning. <laughs> Is this loud enough? Can you hear me? Gracious and holy God, we give you thanks for this day. We thank you for the gift of being able to serve and to be served. We thank you for people who come to this country and find home. And we give thanks for those of us who receive them to help make home here for them. Bless this time, we pray. Bless this talk. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Did she introduce the speaker? Good morning. Thank you for being here. I'm Louisa Merchant. I'm the director of All Saints Refugee Ministries. We welcome you here on this Social Ministries Sunday. We do have tables in the back of the different four core social ministries offered here at All Saints. And they're totally unprepared for this. So um, let me just ask a quick question to the primary volunteer, the director of uh, each each ministry. Is, and the tables will be here after this presentation. So we please encourage you to visit the tables, find out what the services are that are offered by each of the core ministries and what volunteer opportunities there are. So we're going to start with Threads, who she has no idea this is happening. <laughs> totally on, like I'm interrupting their conversation, totally on the spot. Lori Guarisco, how many children are served by threads annually? Seventeen hundred children who receive seven items of beautiful clothing, new shoes, new underwear, toiletries, and most importantly, a very loving experience of community and care when they go to Threads. Thank you. Um, Jonathan Davis, how many people are served by Covenant Community annually? Forty folks annually, 500 individuals a month in substance abuse treatment program, and how many, how many months is the average stay in your residential program? Let's have a huge round of applause for the Martha Stern House Transitional Housing Acquisition. It's wonderful, wonderful news, incredible work. And Wendy or, or Tori, either of you, would you like to um, how, tell us the main service acts that are performed by Midtown Assistance Center? What kind of services do you offer to folks? 
assistance to the working poor of Atlanta, and that is their main uh, mission. But they also have a food pantry, of which we're gearing up for our annual Lent food drive here at All Saints. Um, and you can see some of the things that we typically need at, at the food pantry. We also have men's clothing uh, closet and um, offer MARTA assistance and uh, various other needs, so. Thank you very much. And you're gonna hear about uh, an important relationship this morning that Refugee Ministries has. Refugee Ministries partners with all five of the refugee agencies that exist in Atlanta. And a very important relationship exists with World Relief, the agency that we are thrilled to be hosting today. Um, I was telling Joshua Sawicki, who is the director of the Atlanta Office of World Relief, that my experience of going there with clients to have services such as Medicaid and food stamps renewal, immigration services, mental health care services, for our clients, it spans a very broad spectrum of uh, things our clients receive from World Relief. But one of the most important things is that when I walk into World Relief, I am super happy to be there. It's a really wonderful, lovely, loving, stress-free environment, which for an organization that serves refugees is um, really an incredible accomplishment. I, I always wanna be like, do you mind if I just curl up in your waiting room and take a nap? It feels so great in here. <laughs> so we are delighted by the services and the relationship that we have together. It's my pleasure to introduce Joshua Sawicki, the director of Atlanta World Relief. Thank you, Louisa. <coughs> so it is our great joy to be with you today. Um, and I'm saying that because you are an essential part of our DNA at World Relief. World Relief was started by churches in the aftermath of World War II who saw all the destruction and chaos in Europe, and they said, we want to do something about that, we want to help, but we're not positioned to do that by ourselves, so we need, to, we need someone to help us connect with churches in Europe so that we can help them restore their communities. So World Relief was started by churches who wanted to help churches serve the most vulnerable. And that is our mission still today. Our mission is to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. And our vision, what we hope will happen, is in community with the local church. We envision the most vulnerable people transformed economically, socially, and spiritually. Now that word community implies something that is very important to us, and it's reflected in what Louisa just said. Community requires relationship. At World Relief, we are successful if we accomplish relationships between the families we're serving and people like you. If we serve them alone by ourselves, we don't consider ourselves successful. We exist to make sure that those families have the opportunity to know you all and vice versa. And so that's why my team and I are so thankful for the chance to be with you today because really you are the reason we exist. We don't just exist for the refugees, we exist for you to help you meet the refugees and other immigrants so that you all can enter into transform transformational relationships with one another. I'm very thankful for the invitation today and I'm thankful for the chance to introduce you to one of my colleagues, Matthew Sorens. 
Um, who has heard of the book Welcoming the Stranger already? Is anyone familiar with that? Fantastic. All right. So um, because of our mission at World Relief, we saw a problem. Um, the problem was most churches didn't know how to engage the immigration question and problem in our country. And so approximately 10 years ago, Matthew and another colleague, Jimmy, said, you know, we need to write a book to help churches wrestle with this issue. And so they wrote Welcoming the Stranger. And um, because that problem has still not gone away, the publisher released a second edition in the last year. So I'm very thankful for your desire to hear from Matthew. I'm thankful for his chance to be here. And please welcome him now. Thank you so much, Joshua. <laughs> Well, it is a, a pleasure to be with you all. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, I'm going to talk about the topic of immigration today. So that sometimes puts a few people on edge because that's one of these topics that is in the news every day. Uh, frankly, in the last few weeks, it's been in the news even more than normal. It's at the center of a government shutdown that maybe is for the moment resolved, but be could be coming back. And I think for a lot of Americans, including a lot of Christians and a lot of people in local churches, it's a very divisive issue. It's something that people hear that term and they immediately go in their mind to one side of a partisan debate or another. Uh, and our goal at World Relief, we're not a partisan organization, we're not here to tell you who to vote for or anything like that, but really is to take a step back from some of those political debates and say, how would we think about this topic as followers of Jesus? And that's particularly important for us because our mission is to empower the church to serve the most vulnerable. But we can't necessarily presume that everybody in the church sees helping vulnerable immigrants, whether those are refugees or immigrants who um, have come in other ways, is a good thing to do. Because this is a, a controversial topic in our society. So really, I'm, I'm going to spend most of my time looking at some of the themes in the Bible that might inform how we would respond to the topic of, of immigration. Um, and hopefully we'll save a little time for questions as well. But I'll start with the idea that Jesus himself was a refugee. Uh, a few years ago, my daughter, Zipporah, got really interested in our nativity set. Uh, you we got this as like a wedding present. It's, it's actually kind of a fun toy if you think about it. It's got animals and, you know, the wise men and shepherds and a Mary and Joseph and a little baby Jesus. And so Zipporah would just play with this, like act out the Christmas story, which she knows from her storybook Bible, over and over again, the whole month of December. But she turned to me one day and said, hey, Dad, this is missing someone. We don't have the mean king. And I thought about that. Do any of you have a nativity set with a King Herod figurine? <laughs> I have not seen that. Uh, I've yet to be at the Christmas pageant that ends with the genocide of little boys in Bethlehem, which is not really where we want to go on Christmas Eve, right? But it is part of the Christmas story. In Matthew chapter 2, as soon as the, the Magi, the wise men, are on their way back to their country, Joseph is warned in a dream that Herod, this paranoid, tyrannical Middle Eastern king, is coming to kill all the little baby boys in Bethlehem. And Joseph is told to get up in the middle of the night, no time to make a plan or anything, just escape. Take Mary and Jesus and escape to Egypt, outside of Herod's domain where they would be safe. And we don't get a lot of details in the text of the Bible about what that trip was like. I have a hard time going on road trips with air in an air-conditioned vehicle with my children for more than about 20 minutes, so I can only imagine what it was like taking a newborn to a foreign country without a vehicle. We also don't know how they the Holy Family was treated when they got to Egypt. I've met Coptic Christians in Egypt who have this whole beautiful tradition about how wonderfully they treated the Holy Family. That may be true. It's also quite possible that there was people there who didn't 
know what to think of them or who were suspicious of them. Maybe some people said, how do we know that you're fleeing from Herod and not spies sent by Herod? Or you know what, Joseph, we've got enough jobs in this economy, with, or, or enough carpenters in this economy without you stealing a job. That's a speculation, we don't know that for sure, but what's not speculation is that for the roughly 25 million people in our world today who are refugees, who are individuals who've been forced to flee their country because of a well-founded fear of persecution, they have someone in Jesus who can very personally identify with that experience. And beyond those 25 million people who have fled their countries because of persecution for particular reasons under the law, there's many, many millions more who've fled because of poverty or because of a natural disaster or any number of other reasons. And Jesus is actually just one of many of the, the heroes and heroines of our Christian faith who were crossing borders at one point or another in their stories. Another biblical theme that I think should be foundational as we think about this topic is the idea that God has made every human person in his image. We see this in, in the book of Genesis, at the beginning, uh, where, both, uh, where God forms Adam and Eve and makes them in his image. And Christians have always understood that idea of the imago Dei to mean that people have inherent human dignity, regardless of any qualifier, their gender, their ethnicity, their country of origin, their religion, anything you could add on top of them, every human person has inherent dignity because they're made in the image of God. And that means that their lives are worth protecting. But not only do people have dignity, they also have potential because they're made in the image of the creator with that same spark of the divine to create and to contribute. And that's true of all people, not just immigrants. But I think sometimes when we talk about immigrants, it's easy to focus in just on questions of, well, what are these people going to take? What are they going to consume? How much is this going to cost? How many jobs are they going to take? Those are fair questions. Those are the sort of questions that economists ask. But good economists don't just do cost analyses. They do cost-benefit analyses. And we make a mistake if we forget to ask the question of, what are these people going to contribute? How many jobs are they going to create? Are any of you familiar with the name Sergey Brin? A couple heads nodding, but not necessarily a household name, although I feel like in this crowd, more than I usually see, so you're well informed. Um, Sergey Brin came to this country as a refugee, uh, invited by the US government because his family was fleeing anti-Semitic persecution in the former Soviet Union. He went to school here, started a small business, and he was a kid when he came. His small business went big. You have probably heard of it. It's called Google. I don't really understand what Google is, but it like lives in my pocket and answers all my questions, and <laughs> Google Maps got me here today very successfully, and it employs tens of thousands of people. And so frankly, Mr. Brin's company and all the taxes that he's contributed have probably skewed a little bit some of the economic data on the rec economic contributions of refugees and other immigrants. But in another sense, he's not all that unique. 40% uh, of Fortune 500 companies in this country were founded by an immigrant or their child. Uh, there's many of the most well-known brands that you could think of wouldn't be here, or they might be non-American companies, if it wasn't for our history of immigration to this country. The reality is if you talk to economists, the vast majority of economists think that the net economic impact of immigration is positive. And if you talk to normal Americans, that's a f sort of a 50-50 split question. Is this good for us economically or bad for us? But economists are not confused by that question. They look at a number of different factors, including the fact that immigrants are paying taxes. Um, that's true of refugees. Uh, refugees do also get some assistance from the government when they first arrive. And Unlike most other immigrants, they qualify for some public benefits um, based on their income level. So there are some costs there. 
but if you don't look at them just at a snapshot when they first arrive, but look at them over the horizon of a lifetime, they actually end up contributing more than they ever perceived. Uh, some economists at Notre Dame did a study on this a few years ago and found that the average refugee adult, 20 years after arrival, has contributed $21,000 more in taxes than the combined cost of the public benefits they've received and any sort of resettlement assistance. This is true even if you look at other categories of immigrants. So for example, those who are not here lawfully, who are undocumented, some people would presume, well, those people aren't paying taxes because they're trying to avoid the government. But the reality is uh, those people are almost always paying taxes of some sort. Uh, you pay sales tax whether you are here lawfully or not. You don't get a special card to go through the checkout line at the Walmart that says, I'm not here legally, don't charge me sales tax. Uh, they also pay property taxes, either directly if they own a home or indirectly through their landlord when they pay their rent. And not only that, but about half of the immigrants who are undocumented, who are not lawfully residing in the country, not working lawfully, are having payroll taxes taken out of their paychecks. And that's a surprise to a lot of people, but uh, we know that this is true because the Social Security Administration, who's the, one of the entities that receives that money, tells us this. They tell us that they receive about $12 billion per year from numbers, social security numbers, that don't match the name on the card. Uh, so basically this means people are using fake social security cards. If any of you have looked at your social security card recently, it looks like it was made with blue construction paper and a typewriter. <laughs> like, we could probably come up with a more secure document in 2019 if we wanted to make sure that no one was working without authorization. But the reality is there's a lot of industries in our economy that are very heavily reliant on immigrant labor, some of it not lawfully authorized immigrant labor, and some of those industries push back pretty hard whenever there's an effort to say, we want a system to make sure that we are only hiring people who are authorized to work. Not only is that true, but those folks uh, can then also file taxes. Now they can't use a bogus social security number to file your tax return, but the Internal Revenue Service has created a special individual taxpayer identification number it's a 10-digit number. It looks a lot like a social security number, but technically it's not. It's not valid for any sort of identification purposes. You can't get an earned income tax credit with it, but you can file and pay your taxes. And most of the undocumented immigrants that I know are, are doing so. Um, they have been promised by the IRS explicitly in pub public ways that the Internal Revenue Service will not communicate with the Department of Homeland Security. It's a totally separate part of the federal government, and we promise we don't even talk to them. So we have this very duplicitous uh, system in our immigration system today that one part of the federal government kind of knows what's going on, uh, another part doesn't fully know what's going on. But all of that is a reminder that immigrants of various varieties are contributing. And they're contributing because they're people made in the image of God with that potential to con contribute. Another biblical theme that is really important, and this is in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, is that God is particularly concerned with those who are vulnerable. And in the Old Testament, there's three groups of people who come up over and over and over again in the same passages. It's the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. Or depending upon your translation of the Bible into English, the sojourner, the stranger, the alien, the immigrant. That word is the Hebrew word ger, and it appears 92 times just in the Old Testament. It's actually one of the most frequent themes in the Hebrew Scriptures of God telling his people, these people are vulnerable, I love them, and you shall love them. Um, and not just in a generic way, but God establishes laws for the Israelites. He tells them, when you go through your crops, your olives, your grapes, your wheat, go through everything one time, and then leave what remains for the orphan, 
the widow, and the foreigner. So there was a system that God put in place so that these vulnerable groups of people who in that time, because of their status, were unlikely to be landowners, would have a means to provide for their basic needs. Now, another command that's really important in the Bible uh, that relates to this topic is the command to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we find that in the Old Testament, and then that's reiterated in the New Testament. And when Jesus is asked, well, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says it's to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the person who asked Jesus this question is a, a legal scholar, a lawyer, and apparently a good lawyer because he's got the follow-up question ready. Who is my neighbor? And you get the sense, it says in the text, he wants to justify himself. So he would like a very precise legal definition, which he could then show that he was fulfilling the law by, by loving his neighbor. So if it was your neighbor is someone three doors down on either side, as long as they're of the same language and ethnicity and sexual orientation and religion as you, that might be easy. And if you didn't like those people, you could move. But that's not the command that Jesus gives. Jesus doesn't answer that question with a specific legal definition. He tells a story. It's a story of the Good Samaritan, this person who, well, it starts with a presumably Jewish person who's beaten up on the side of the road to Jericho. And a priest and a Levite, the religious leaders of the time, come by, see him in need, and walk on by on the other side. But then a Samaritan, someone who is ethnically different, religiously different, comes by, sees this person in need, has compassion on him, and takes him to get help. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And I think one takeaway for us is that we do not get to narrowly define who our neighbor is. Um, we certainly don't do, get to do so based on just our country of origin or our religion or any other factor. It could be just about anyone who's in need. And also, it's important to note that when Jesus says, love your neighbors yourself, he doesn't put a little asterisk there that says, you know, so long as it's totally safe. Uh, it wasn't safe for the Good Samaritan to go on what, a road that had the reputation for being a dangerous road to stop and linger to help this person out. We can easily criticize the priest and the Levite, but, you know, most of us would probably tell our children if they were on a dark road with a dangerous reputation at night to kind of keep their head down and keep going. Don't, you know, don't stop, don't put yourself at risk. But the Samaritan who did that to help someone who is in need is the model that we have of neighborly love. And we work with churches at World Relief in the Middle East and Africa who are responding, frankly, to much larger numbers of refugees and displaced people than, than we ever do in the United States who don't go through a thorough vetting process before they get to them. Um, they are not being paranoid if they wonder if some bad people might sneak in with the legitimate refugees. But we've had our, some of our church partners said, you know, we never were under the impression that following Jesus was going to be safe. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, this is our privilege to love these neighbors. The other part of that, though, is to know that in the United States, it actually is very safe to welcome our immigrant neighbors. Um, so refugees is one example. Refugees all come to the U.S. at the invitation of the State Department through the Refugee Resettlement Program. It's a very selective process, so there's 25 million refugees in the world. Last year, the United States took in less than 23,000, so less than one-tenth of one percent of all the world's refugees. Um, so there's plenty of people who do not get invited to come to the U.S. And those who do, do so only after undergoing a very thorough vetting process. It's a process that usually takes somewhere between 18 months and three years to complete. It is coordinated between the Department of State, the Department of Defense, the National Counterterrorism Center, the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and it's been remarkably effective. 
Despite all the things we hear in the media about refugees and terrorism, the reality is that since the Refugee Act was signed into law by President Carter in 1980, there have been three million refugees resettled through the United States, and not a single one of them has taken an American life in a terrorist attack. That's actually a pretty remarkable record, and, and we ought to give some credit to the, the men and women who work for the Department of Homeland Security who, who coordinate that vetting process. Now that's not to say that nothing bad could ever happen or that we should not be vigilant as a nation or expect our government to do so. But it does mean that when people are very afraid of refugees, it's not really based on, on good data. Uh, others would say, okay, well, refugees go through this thorough vetting process, but what about someone who snuck into the country, crossed the border illegally? And we don't know, you know all that information about them, which is a fair concern. And we've always been clear at World Relief, we think it's appropriate to have secure borders. We think our government should know who's coming in and out of the country and should do background checks and that sort of thing. But it's not fair to conclude that there's some sort of a connection between immigration and crime, which we tend to hear a lot about in television or on social media. The reality is, for decades now, if you look at FBI crime data, it turns out that immigrants commit crime at lower rates than native-born U.S. citizens. Uh, one way to measure this is looking at incarceration. So for adults ages 18 to 54, about 1.5% of native-born U.S. citizens are incarcerated, uh, about eight to nine-tenths percent of unlawfully present immigrants, and about half of one percent of lawfully present immigrants. Uh, now, that's not necessarily because immigrants are more virtuous than U.S. citizens, but it probably has to do with the consequences at play. So if I'm an immigrant and I commit a crime, a very minor crime, let's say I stole a candy bar in the state of Indiana, that's a crime involving moral turpitude. And even if I'm here lawfully with my green card, it can be a deportable offense. So I have a very strong disincentive to not steal that candy bar. If I'm undocumented, I don't even have to have stolen the candy bar. I just have to have been suspected of stealing the candy bar. And then they can realize, oh, sorry, we made a mistake. You were the wrong guy. But once I'm being fingerprinted, it still might end up in me being deported if I'm unlawfully present in the country. I say all that because, in one sense, we should love our neighbors even if it was risky. But it's also worth knowing that it's, the risk is very, very minimal. And so we shouldn't let that keep us from obeying this commandment that Jesus says sums up all the other commandments. But I mentioned immigrants who are not here lawfully. That brings up another concern for a lot of Christians. Because on the one hand, we're called to love and welcome people. We have all these passages about that theme. But we're also called to be subject to the governing authorities. We find that in Romans chapter 13. And a lot of Christians feel a tension there. We want to love and welcome people, but some of these people haven't followed the law. So what do we do? It's worth acknowledging that most immigrants in the U.S. actually do have legal status. More than 70% are either naturalized citizens or they came as refugees. They get legal status from the day they come in or they've come through other means. But there are roughly 11 million people in our nation, and a good share of those in the state of Georgia, who are not lawfully present. About half those people came in on a temporary visa that they overstayed. Another half came in across the border unlawfully. And so for a lot of Christians, there's that tension. We want to respect the rule of law, which is a good biblical thing, but we also want to show compassion and love to people. So what do we do? Well, the good news is, if you look at U.S. immigration law, uh, it's super complicated, but all those complications mostly apply to immigrants. If you happen to be blessed to be a U.S. citizen, it's pretty hard for you to break immigration law. You could do so by employing someone. But really beyond that, most of the things that an individual or a church would do to interact with their undocumented neighbors are not against the law. You can have someone over for a meal. You can teach them English. You can teach them Sunday school. 
You can baptize them. You can serve them in the Eucharist. You can, I mean, those of you who are priests, but, um, you know, all, all these things are not unlawful in the state of, of Georgia or at the federal level. So to the question of should we love and welcome our immigrant neighbors or should we follow the law, I would say yes. And then we can look to, for ways to how do we restore the rule of law to a system that, frankly, that's not working very well. Because for decades, there's been a lot of looking the other way, lots of duplicitous systems where one part of our federal government is taking these people's taxes, another part of the federal government says, yeah, you're not technically supposed to be here. Uh, we've said for a long time at World Relief that we would better honor the law if we said to people who are here unlawfully, you should come forward. It's be fair to have a fine involved because you did break the law. And I don't know any undocumented immigrants who wouldn't be willing to pay that fine. Of course, go through a criminal background check. If you've committed serious criminal violent offenses, you, you, know, you wouldn't qualify. But for those who've been working, who've been paying their taxes, who've been trying to support their families, they'd have that chance to earn permanent legal status if they're willing to work for it. And that would, I think, actually then respect the rule of law more than pretending we have these laws, but pretending we don't know that they're being violated. Another biblical theme is that we see this particular concern in the scriptures for people who are persecuted as followers of Jesus. And many of those people actually have historically come to the United States as refugees. Um, I think it gets lost in some of the media coverage around refugee issues, which tends to focus on Muslim refugees from the Middle East who are really important. But actually most refugees are not Muslims and they're not from the Middle East. Anyone wanna take a guess on the number one country of origin for refugees to the US in the last 10 years? We have too, informed too many informed people here. That is exactly correct. <laughs> Most people are like Mexico, China. It is Burma or Myanmar in Southeast Asia. Uh, Burma is a country with a very brutal government that particularly mistreats ethnic minorities and religious minorities. So uh, Muslim re Muslims from Burma who are mostly Rohingya, you've probably seen in the news, the government treats them horrifically. It's really a genocide that's happening. But they've also very horrifically mistreated Christian minorities. Christians are a very small percentage of the Burmese population, but they've been 70% of the Burmese refugees who've come to the US, uh, largely Baptists or Anglicans, some Catholics, and more than 100,000 of them have come to the United States over the last 10 years. Um, likewise, there are refugees from Iraq who are Christian minorities who face really horrific persecution there right now, or from Iran. When we welcome these brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, I just think about if I was in their shoes and I somehow there was persecution of Christians in this country and I had to flee my home and ended up halfway around the world in an airport, I would be so grateful if there was someone from a local church there to meet me and to work with me through an awkward language barrier and cultural differences and grieve with me all that had been lost and help me to rebuild my life. And we have the opportunity to do that for brothers and sisters in Christ from various parts of the world. Uh, Matthew chapter 25 suggests that when we do so, we're actually not just welcoming them, but welcoming Jesus himself. Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, my sisters, you did unto me. Of course, the flip side of a lot of refugees being Christians is a lot of other refugees are not Christians. Uh, they're Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or from religious groups that I never heard of before I worked with refugee resettlement. And for some Americans, I think especially if we're honest around the question of Muslim refugees, that makes them very concerned. They see this as a potential threat. Uh, but we really view this at World Relief as, as an opportunity, an opportunity to live out that command to love our neighbors as ourselves, which is clearly uh, not just for those who share our faith, because the Samaritan did not have the same religious background as the Jewish person beat on the side of the road, to 
affirm the dignity of people who are made in God's image, and to live out the Great Commission, that command to make disciples of all nations. And we don't do so through proselytism. We don't trick people into following Jesus or serve them better if they decide to become a Christian or are willing to pray a prayer. But we do believe in being a witness to who Jesus is. And we find that often happens um, in response to questions. Because when it's a team from a church who meets a Muslim refugee family at the airport and is there to welcome them and really loves them as their neighbors and serves them well, without any pretext that we'll love you as long as you someday come to our church or become a Christian. But when we do that well, it's rare that sooner or later they don't ask the question of why. And we get to, as, as it says in First Peter 3, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason for the hope that's within you. And we've seen families from all sorts of different backgrounds make the choice to become followers of Jesus here in the United States. Frankly, it's really short-sighted to not think about that as an opportunity for, for the church because you have people fleeing from countries where they do not have religious freedom, where they don't have the choice to change their faith if they would want to. They come to this country where we are blessed with religious freedom, where we are free to share our faith and they are free to receive it or to reject it. And many have made the choice in the United States to become followers of Jesus. So I'll close with one last principle or one last story. Um, and that's on the idea of hospitality. I think I grew up thinking of hospitality maybe as like a committee at church that made coffee. Um, you guys have better coffee than my church, but we're working on it. Uh, or maybe hospitality was like having your friends over for lunch, like a nice lunch. Like maybe you got some recipes off Pinterest or something, or maybe some nice table settings. Those are good things to do, but having your friends over for lunch is actually not hospitality. And that is because hospitality, at least in the Greek of the New Testament, is philoxenia. It is literally the love of strangers, which is a countercultural idea, right? I mean, I grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons, and they had these public service announcements about stranger danger. Like, we teach our children, strangers are scary people. And I get why we send that message to kids, but I think maybe sometimes as adults, sometimes as a society, our response to those who are different from us, who are unknown to us, is to see a potential threat. Now, I'm not going to tell you, I promise, the Bible says all strangers are safe. I don't have a verse for that. But I can tell you in Romans chapter 12 that we are commanded to practice hospitality, literally to practice loving strangers. And in Hebrews chapter 13, it says that some people, by welcoming strangers, have entertained angels without realizing it. So about seven or eight years ago, there was a new family that moved into the apartment complex where I was living. It was a really diverse complex of outside of Chicago. We had about 20 different countries of origin. Many of them had come as refugees. Others were undocumented immigrants from Mexico or a few other places. But this particular family showed up. They're from East Africa. They did not come as refugees. They came on temporary visas. But like refugees, they were fleeing persecution. They had a political situation that had come up very suddenly, and they happened to have tourist visas, so they got on a plane and came to the United States with the intention of requesting asylum here in the U.S. And because they didn't come as refugees, World Relief or another resettlement agency didn't know they were coming. We didn't have a team from a church there to meet them at the airport. We hadn't set up an apartment for them. They just kind of showed up and were kind of on their own. They didn't really know anyone. And my, my at the time, girlfriend, Diana, had met them before I did. She lived in the apartment complex, uh, apartment across the courtyard from me. She came over to my apartment one day and told me about this family she'd met. And she speaks French so she could communicate with them, which is it's like their fourth language. And she said, Matt, these people don't have anything. There's no furniture, big family uh, in a small apartment. And the mom's eight months pregnant, and she doesn't know where the hospital is. 
So we said, well, how do we practice hospitality? How do we show love for these people showing up as strangers in our country? So we put a message on Facebook and asked some people from our church, does anyone have furniture? My wife was there when that baby was born a month later. Uh, their family are, are strong Christians. They started becoming a member of our church. I was there at, uh, as uh, their younger son was baptized. In fact, I'm his godfather. And they just became really close friends. And over time, their asylum application was approved. They were able to work. They didn't need a lot of help anymore. Uh, and that's really our hope at World Relief. They need, people need a lot of help when they first arrive, but long term, what we want to see is a reciprocal relationship, a, is a really a two-way friendship. And about two years passed, in that time, Diana and I got married, they were a part of our wedding, and then probably a year after we'd gotten married, this family's husband slash father showed up. And it is a long story why he couldn't be there in the beginning, it goes back to the persecution that they were fleeing. But I got to be there at the baggage claim at O'Hare Airport when he met his two-year-old daughter for the first time. And they were all holding it together quite well, and I was just kind of a weepy mess off in the corner at the baggage claim. <laughs> I mean, I think some people were worried about me, like, what's going on with this guy? But it was amazing to see this family reunited after really, frankly, not knowing if they would ever see each other again. And over time, this guy, Jean Vier, became a very close friend of mine as well, and he and his wife, Marie. At one point, they were over for dinner at our house, and they asked us a question, which is not really culturally appropriate, but we will forgive that because they're not from here. They looked at us and said, so you guys have been married for a year. When are you going to have babies? And Diane and I kind of looked at each other. The truth is we had always dreamed to be parents and had been hoping and praying and trying to have a baby for a year, and it hadn't happened. And we were starting to wonder if that wasn't going to happen. And, you know, we were, it was a sensitive topic. So we explained that. We said, we'd, you know, we'd appreciate your prayers, which is a very nice casual Christian sort of thing to say. Well, they assured us they were going to be praying for us. And in fact, John Vier said, I just have this sense from the Lord that he's going to bless you with a child in the next year. Well, I thanked him for that. That was very sweet. Um, but I didn't go start painting the nursery uh, because it's not like we hadn't tried prayer. But it was only a few months later. We were over their house for dinner. And we got to share with them the good news. They were the first people we told that Diana was pregnant. And I will never forget the moment. There was kind of a few seconds of a delay because they are translating our English into their own language in their minds when they understood what we just told them. And they literally fell down on the ground, prostrate, with all sorts of shouting of Jesus and hallelujahs. And I don't know everything they were saying, but it was like a Pentecostal church service in their kitchen. <laughs> and they went on to tell us that they'd been getting up early every Thursday for months, that they had been fasting all day on Thursdays and praying that God would bless us with a child. And you can see there my daughter Zipporah with her godparents, John Vier and Marie. And she is, I have no doubt, the answer to their prayers. And to ours, but mostly to theirs because I didn't fast and pray all day on Thursdays. <laughs> so I'll, I'll close with that story and with that challenge to practice hospitality, practice loving strangers. Don't be surprised if a few of them turn out to be angels in disguise. Thank you. Louisa, can you, we have like two, three minutes? Okay, I'm sorry I didn't save more time for questions, but I stuck to the Bible because it's less likely to offend anybody, but feel free to ask whatever you want on policy or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So nationally, refugee resettlement is down about 75% from 2016 to 2018. And um, frankly, it's forced World Relief to sort of reinvent ourselves because um, 
what most of what we did in most of our offices was refugee resettlement. We're still doing refugee resettlement, although in five fewer locations around the U.S. than we were two years ago. We are still here in Atlanta, and we have every intention of staying here. Um, it's had a huge financial impact on us because of, a significant part of our funding historically has been a federal grant for refugee resettlement. That's on a per-refugee basis. So uh, some of those money, of course, goes to rent and other things for the refugee, but another part of it goes to staffing costs. So we've had to reduce our staff pretty significantly across the U.S. and particularly here in Atlanta. Uh, we have also seen churches and individuals and, and foundations and corporations and others step up to compensate for some of that and really be able to sustain our infrastructure because we hope and pray that one of these days we'll go back to a normal, historically normal level of refugee resettlement in this country. Um, that's certainly our, our hope and our prayer. Um, but we do rely really heavily on, on support, not just from governmental sources, but from churches, from individuals, from uh, foundations. So if any of you looking for a charitable opportunity, we would love to talk to you. And the other resettlement agencies are in a very similar position as well. Um, all, there's nine agencies nationally. Um, several of them are here in Clarkston, um, but they are all in kind of the same boat. Um, but it is, our biggest concern, of course, is the refugees themselves. I mean, we would have expected in a normal year to have 100,000 refugees like we did in 2016, and instead we have 23,000. So there's tens of thousands of refugees who are not coming, who, I mean, are amongst the most vulnerable categories of refugees. And frankly, we often know their families here, because more than half of the refugees that World Relief resettles are family reunification cases. Uh, so we are interacting with people here who are desperately concerned about their loved ones, either still in a situation of persecution or warehoused in a refugee camp somewhere and asking, when will they be able to come? And we usually cannot give them a very clear answer because we don't get to make those decisions. Those are governmental policy decisions. And really at the executive branch level. Uh, Congress gave the executive branch, the president, the authority to set that level of refugee resettlement in the Refugee Act of 1980. And they've shown no real suggestion that they would like to take that authority back. Uh, one thing, since nobody asked this quick question, sometimes you hear this called the Muslim ban, and I think that's, there's some reason for that. The number of refugees who are Muslims are down by more than 90%, so disproportionately negatively impacted. But in some ways, a Muslim ban is, it's insufficiently, it's actually broader than that, because it's also affecting every other religious group. And particularly Christians or other religious minorities from some of the Muslim-majority countries where Christians face a lot of persecution. So. Last year, there was fewer than 10 Syrian Christians able to come to the United States. That's down more than 90% from 2016. Uh, the number of Iranian Christians was over 2,000 in 2016, and last year it was also around 10, um, so down by 99%. So this is affecting Muslims most dramatically, actually, overall, but it's also affecting Christians. It's also affecting Hindus and Buddhists and um, Jews and every religious group you could think of, basically. Yeah, so the census for, uh, has for many years um, has not asked the question, are you a citizen? And a census bureau has other ways to get at that information from immigration services and that sort of thing. But the reason for not specifically asking that question is that the Constitution says that the census shall be done on every 10 years to count the number of people in the country. It doesn't say the number of citizens. And the concern is if you ask that question and you're the federal government, even if we do some sort of disclaimer that we're a different part of the federal government, a lot of non-citizens, whether they're lawfully present or not, and most of them are lawfully present, 
will be afraid to answer that question and think that saying no, which is the true answer, might somehow harm them. So they might just not answer the questions at all, and you end up with an inaccurate count of the actual number of people in the country. Um, that's why under Republican and Democratic administrations for decades, they've not asked that question. There's been an effort um, apparently coming out of the Justice Department to ask, ask that question in the 2020 census. At the moment, that is caught up in court because it's sort of a debate on whether that question is necessary or not and what the purpose actually is. It could have very significant impacts because the census is used to determine congressional representation. So states, frankly, like Georgia, that have a lot of immigrants, they might look on paper like their population plummeted compared to states like, I don't know, Iowa or Idaho that have relatively few immigrants as a part of their population. Um, and so you might change who gets the number of House of Representative seats. It also affects how federal funds are distributed to states um, based on population. Looks like we are out of time, I'm afraid, unless uh, Luis is the enforcer here. Yeah. <laughs> Big round of applause for Matthew Sorens. We're delighted to have him today. Um, go to church. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much.